بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على شرف المرسلين سيدنا ونبينا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين الحمد لله بلغ رسول الله We are here with the notes So before the class if you want to You can read the notes and prepare yourself for next week's lesson Last week we ended on the how of performing wudu. Today we will be doing related things such as the nullifiers or breakers of wudu. How is a wudu cancelled, nullified, broken? We'll also discuss certain acts that some people think break the wudu, but it doesn't break the wudu. We'll also discuss which rituals require you to be in a state of wudu. All of this is with the notes we gave you last week. The note we're giving you today is the etiquette of toileting followed by ghusl. If we get to that today, then alhamdulillah. Otherwise, that will be done next week. And then we'll be discussing the types of najasat, the types of impurities. As to the nullifiers of wudu, the term nullifier or nullifiers of wudu refers to those five things that cause minor ritual impurity. In Arabic, that is known as hadath asghar. You don't need to know the Arabic. A physical impurity is a najasa or a najas, what we learned, right? And a ritual impurity is a hadath. If there's a physical impurity on your body, then a portion of the body is impure and it must be washed away. If you are in a state of hadas, ritual impurity, then technically you aren't impure. Technically you're clean. But you're not clean enough to perform certain rituals. That's why we don't just call it an impurity. We call it a ritual impurity. You are not ritually pure. You're pure, physically pure, but you're not ritually pure. So let's say, for example, if I at this moment in time, I'm not in a state of ghusl. No, in a state of wudu. Then that wouldn't mean that I'm filthy. I'm still technically, physically clean. But I'm not clean enough to perform certain rituals. So I'm physically clean, but ritually impure. Is that what you ask me? So there's a difference between a physical uncleanliness or impurity and a ritual impurity. A physical impurity means there's najasa on my body somewhere. Somewhere on my body... There's actual filth, physical filth. All ritual impurity means I, I haven't entered that higher state of purity where I may, I may now perform certain rituals such as salah. The term for the lesser ritual impurity when I require wudu is hadath asghar. The term for the higher ritual impurity where I require ghusl is known as hadath akbar. Asghar means smaller. Akbar means greater. Hadath asghar, hadath akbar. So, a bath that only affects certain portions of my body, wudu, the asghar, the minor ritual impurity. A bath where I have to wash my entire body now. Hadath akbar, the major ritual impurity. Right? Everyone is with me? Right. In case of wudu, the things that nullify your do are the following. Number one, when any object exits, 
de urinary tract of the anus. So your front private part, if anything exits the front private part, or the rear private part, dead or living, liquid, solid, gas, does not make a difference. So you're laughing because I said dead or living. But the reality is that a large amount of loving objects leave the private parts of humans on a regular basis internationally. Sometimes people eat things that has worms in, and it happens a lot here in Africa, then those worms actually crawl out of their anus at some time or the other. When that happens, it actually does break your wudu. So anything that exits the front private part or the rear private part, it results in the breaking of your state of wudu. Right? So as I said, doesn't matter, liquid, solid, gas, dead or alive. Right? Anything that exits, it breaks the wudu. When we say front private part, we mean the tube that allows your rim to exit. That is what we mean. You see already what I mean? And at the rear, there's only one, uh, so we actually refer to that, and Allah knows best. In the case of a lady, there's actually two exits. So, in the front now, in this case, it does apply to both. Any liquid coming out from either side. And since this is a common uh, occurrence for ladies, that the front private part of a lady, her womb now, and the exit to it, cleanses itself on a regular basis. And part and parcel of the cleansing is that the the liquid that is used to cleanse it exits. So what do you call that? Women normally call it discharge. Is that what you ask me? So discharge actually breaks the hudu. Right? If it is normal, just uh, a perspiration of that part of the body, so then it, it wouldn't because it's not coming through the urinary tract or through the, 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 the other opening. But discharge does break the hudu. And Allah knows best. The second thing that breaks your do is sleep. And one of the reasons that sleep breaks your do is because when you sleep, then all the lungs of your body relaxes. Your whole body goes flaccid. So to break wind is natural and easy when you are sleeping. On the poop. And since you're sleeping, how would you know you pooped? So it creates a problem. In the beginning of Islam, some of the prophetic companions came up with their own solutions. Like one companion, whenever he went to sleep, he would put a young boy next to him. Have him sit there. And watch and listen. And then whenever he woke up, he would say, Al-Ahdaftu, Edekhapup. Then the boy says, no, then he would make salah. No problem. Then what Islam did, is he did something that became a universal law of Islam. He did something known as a madhinna. Madhinna means the place where a thing is normally found. Where do you normally find a drunkard? At a bar, isn't it? Where do you normally find a gambler? Eh? At a casino? Right. In the Shafi Madhab, if I touch a woman's skin-to-skin -skin contact, it breaks my wudu, isn't it? So many of you are thinking 
The reason it breaks the wudu is because there's a sexual feeling that can run through the body at that moment in time. Shahwa. The Shafi Malam doesn't work on the presence or absence of the feeling. It works on the mazinna. The fact that when an adult male touches an adult female, then that is the place where shahwa, sexual feeling, is normally found. Whether it was found or wasn't found is irrelevant. That is the place where it is normally found. So it applies the rule. So with regards to sleep, it says, the place where breaking of wind, passing of wind is normally found is sleep. Whether you broke your wind or didn't break the wind, that's irrelevant. That is the place where it is normally found. So in Islam, there's a thing known as a mazinna. A place where a thing is normally found. Whenever we come to a mazinna, we just work on the assumption the thing is there. We don't ask the question, was it there, wasn't it there? The reality is that it is normally found there. Is everybody with me? And it is a safer route for Islam to operate like that. Is it possible for a young male to be in the presence of an adult female and not experience sexual desire? Yes, it is possible. But it isn't probable. So Islam is not interested in possibilities. It is more interested in what probably happens. And then it takes due protection. Is everybody with me? So what we call this? We call it Mazinna. The place where it is normally found. So in any masala, in any case, when we deal with Mazinna, according to Islamic law, we say it was there. Whether it was there or wasn't there, if that is the place that it is normally found, then it is there. It's like I'm going past a bar and the bar is open. Is there a drunkard in the bar? Most probably the easiest. So Islamically we work on the assumption there is one. I don't need to go and have a look. You understand? We just assume there's at least one drunkard in the bar. Because that's the law. Mazinda. Right? And Allah knows best. So with regards to sleep, we now work on the assumption that whenever you fall asleep, your limbs relaxed and you let go. Is everybody with me? In the notes you will find a nice hadith of the Prophet where he likens sleep to the tying of your money back. Back in the day they had leather pouches separate, independent of your, of your, of your clothing. Then they had a string. So after you put your coins in, if you tie the string, then the coins connect cannot fall out. So that is your eyes. Your eyes are like the string of the money bag. When your eyes are open, meaning you are awake, the coins cannot just go their way. The poop can't go their way. You understand? If the poop escapes, you're going to know when your eyes are open. But the moment you fall asleep, then it is as if the string of the money bag was opened. Have coins left the bag? Probably. And Allah knows? Best. Right. <coughs> so sleep breaks the wudu. If sleep breaks the wudu, which is a lesser state of unconsciousness, what about full-blown unconsciousness? Like I'm playing rugby or something, like it's smashed right against the head and boom, all lights go out. Full-blown unconsciousness. You understand? 
Does that break the wudu? So we say awla. Awla, Arabic, it means more entitled to the law. Since it is a greater loss of consciousness than sleep, it is more entitled to the law that it should also break the wudu. Is everyone with me? Right. Number four. If you touch a non-mahram, a member of the opposite gender, that you are allowed to marry. A mahram is a member of the opposite gender that you are not allowed to marry. But there you must take special note. It must be somebody that you are permanently not allowed to marry. If I marry a particular woman, let's say him now, while I'm married to him, I can't marry his sister. So his sister is haram to me. But, oh sorry, her sister. is haram to me. But only temporarily. While I'm married to her. If she dies tomorrow, or divorce happens, then I'm allowed to marry the sister. So that means the sister is not a mahram. It must be somebody that is permanently haram to me. Like my mother, my grandmother, that's going up now. Going down now, my daughter, my granddaughter, going to the right of me, my sister, my blood aunt, and so forth. So all of those women, they are mahrams. If somehow there is skin-to-skin contact with them, then my wudu will not break. Because they are not mazhinna to shahwa. They are not the place that sexual desire is normally found. The normal male does not experience sexual desire for his mother, or his grandmother, his daughter, his granddaughter, his sister, his aunt, etc. Is that what you me? Does the normal male experience sexual desire for his cousin? Yes, the normal male does. The normal male does. That's why in Islam you are allowed to marry your cousin. Cousins make dozens. It is not unusual for the average female not to feel sexual desire for a cousin, especially if she grew up with him. You understand? A lady, when it comes to sexual desire, is somewhat the more naive party. The male is the sexual predator. You understand? It is not unusual for a male to have interesting dreams about his cousins. Right? Might not be you. But for the average male, that is normal. But for you to have sexual desire for your mother or your daughter or your sister, that's perversion. You understand? The average male does not experience that. Also, I just as an added issue, it's allowed for you to marry the cousin from your mother's side and the cousin from your father's side. Eh? Some people then came to and say, you can marry the cousin from your mother's side, but not the cousin from your father's side. They say the blood is thicker. We check the blood is the same. Okay, that's a joke. But there's no Islamic law that says on the one side and not the other side. You're allowed to marry all cousins. There are numerous cousins in Cape Town that are married, including among the ulama, the scholars. Such as Ismail Lont, he's married to his cousin, Mariam Giri, from his mother's side. You understand? And other scholars. So, cousins marrying one another is common. And Allah knows best. You might not know about it. <laughs> but they're all around you. So anyway, skin-to-skin contact. Skin-to-skin contact. If you're touching teeth 
that doesn't break the wudu. Here, it doesn't break the wudu. You understand? Nail doesn't break the wudu. But skin to skin contact. You understand? Intended, not intended, what desire, without desire, it breaks the wudu according to the Shafi understanding. They get the understanding from a verse in the Quran where Allah speaks of the things that require you to take a wudu and then suddenly there's the mention of awla mastumun nisa'a or the skin-to-skin contact of women. Other schools of thought, like the Hanabi school of thought, take that portion of the ayah to mean full-blown sexual intercourse. So they don't consider skin-to-skin contact to be a breaker of the wudu. There are two major legal schools in Cape Town amongst the Muslims. Shafi school of law and Hanafi school of law. The Shafi school of law says that if the skin-to-skin contact, whether what desire, without desire, intended, unintended, it breaks the wudu. The Hanafi school of law says it does not break the wudu. The only time the wudu is broken is when you engage in full-blown sexual intercourse. But that over there does not break the wudu. So you'll find these two practices amongst Muslims. If it is easy for you to go on the Shafi understanding, doesn't cause you great difficulty, then go that way. If it places you in extreme difficulty, like if you're a married person, then technically your husband is a non is a non mahram or your wife. So from one waktu to the next waktu, if you wanted to keep your wudu, you would have to stay physically separate. You understand that? If that goes contrary to your understanding of love, you're a very touchy person, you will buy your fatamaka, no problem. You understand? If you want to continue the shaf understanding, take a new wudu, mashallah. But if it places you in difficulty, you do have the right to follow the other view. Both views are considered uh, valid views amongst Muslims. Allah knows best. Are there any questions at this moment in time before we continue? <coughs> yes. That is a view that exists amongst Muslims, especially in South Africa. But the view is not supported by evidence. You see this very statement, chop and change. What does that mean? When did the Marayib come into existence? What were the companions on before that? Who created the law that I, I can decide that I don't want to follow this person today and to follow that person? Who created the law that said, I don't have the right to now follow that one? Where is the ayah in the Quran? Where is the hadith? Where is the Islamic proof that what you've called chop and change? I'm not allowed to do that. Are you with me? So if you want to, then sometime in the future we can have a look at this. The concept of mujtahid, an independent scholar that has the right to take from Quran and hadith, and muqallid is follower. And what are the laws of being a follower? And do I have a right to break away from my mother? Yes or no? The reality is 
that according to the bulk of scholars internationally and throughout history, you do have the right to break away from your mother. There's only two things that you are not allowed uh, to do when it comes to breaking away from your mother. Right? The more, the more important of the two things is what is known as uh, talfiq. To create a scenario where you're actually acting on both mothers at the same time. Right? A nice example happened in Strand one day. Um, a Muslim gentleman had a non-Muslim partner in a business arrangement. The non-Muslim partner owed a lot of money to the bank. And he wanted to make a new loan from the banks. But he had no security. So the Muslim partner transferred 10 homes, houses, into his non-Muslim partner's, uh, let's, let's just call it property, his ownership. It wasn't a true transfer. It was only to secure a loan that he wanted to get. You understand? Right. Then what happened is that this other individual, true to his past, didn't pay the new loan also. So the bank came to claim the houses. One of the houses that the bank came to claim, a individual that knew a, thing, a few things about Islam lived in that house. And the Muslim partner had actually given him a 10-year lease on the house for free. Right? So what he did that particular day is when the, the auctioneers came to auction the house, all the buyers are standing outside, he came out with a 10-year lease and he showed them, I've got a 10-year lease on this house. I can stay in this house for 10 years till I come in eight coin. Then all the new buyers walked away. Then he offered 10,000 rand for a house that was worth at least 800,000 rand. Since he was the only buyer present, the house was sold to him. Now that is an example of Blending between two schools where it cannot work. How is it an example? You see the house either belongs to the non-Muslim party or it belongs to the Muslim. If it belongs to the Muslim, then the 10-year lease is valid. But the house cannot be sold. If it belongs to the non-Muslim party, the house can be sold and bought, but the 10-year lease is invalid. The man that lives in, lived in the house, he came out and he affected both. He acted on the validity of the lease and he still bought the house. It's either or. It cannot be both. Like a man offers words of talaq to his wife. So at that moment in time, she's either his wife or she is not his wife. Then he gets involved in a legal squabble where he makes her at one moment in time his wife and the next moment in time not his wife. You can't do that. It's either or. You understand what I'm saying? Like, as me have brick of the issue of what is now front. Is my do broken, yes or no? When I touch a member of the opposite gender that is a non-mahram. So either I'm in the Shafi view that says, yes, my do is broken, or I'm in the Hanafi view that says, my do is not broken. I can't create a scenario where my do is broken, not broken. It's an either-or. I can't take the pro of the one and the pro of the other. Whichever one I choose, I must take its pros and I must take its 
cons. That is what it comes down to. I've written something on it's jihad some eight years back. If you want to read on it, I'll make it available to you. But the issue of, as we say, chopping and changing, it's not an issue among scholars, classical scholars in their books. Anyway, so the first thing that breaks the wudu is the touching of the private parts. Whether it is your own private parts or somebody else's private parts, whether the, the possessor of the private parts is living or dead, it does not matter. Touching the private parts breaks the wudu. And Allah knows this. Yeah, there's a difference between touching the private parts and touching a member of the opposite gender. If I touch a member of the opposite gender like that, with the palm of my hand, my wudu breaks. If I touch them like that, my wudu also breaks. When it comes to touching private parts, the law is different. If you look at my hand, You'll see there's a section that's lighter in color than the rest of my hand. This here is a darker brown. Then if you look at it from the side, you see the darker brown becomes lighter of complexion. Are you with me? So the lighter of complexion skin, when that touches a private part, the do breaks. When the darker portion touch, the do doesn't break. Is everybody with me? The same with the rest of my body. If for some reason or other my elbow touches my private part, maybe while I'm putting my hand away on, then that doesn't break my wudu. It must be touching with the palm of the hand. Is everybody with me? The guy is perhaps putting his underwear on, but like this. And then the, the rear touches his private part. That does not break the wudu. So there's a difference. Touching a member of the opposite gender, wudu breaks. Touching a private part, wudu breaks. Doesn't break, doesn't break. Breaks. Is everybody with me? So it must be this portion of skin. Right. Next, the non nullifiers. Yes. Some scholars say that. They say that if you change one masala in a particular Baba chapter, then you have to follow the, the complete matter upon that chapter. So they're actually telling you that if you don't want your do to break, when you touch a member of the opposite gender, then you need to take a Hanafi Udu. Again, where does that condition come from? Where did you get that? Which I and the Quran told you that? Which Hadith told you that? Was that the way of the Sahaba? Sahaba freely followed one another and the interpretations of one another prior to the existence of the Madhahib. The Madhahib, the former Rahib that exists, are the former Rahib that survived the ravages of time and proved themselves. But besides the former Rahib, there were over a hundred Madhahib back in the day. And, it, and, and these matters were freely followed by everybody 
in its time. Yes, what's the question? Yes? Between you and the child. Yeah, it's fine. Remember touching the jasa doesn't break the udu. It's only touching a private part that breaks the udu. So if you're using a wet wipe, then there's a barrier between you and the child's private part, then it does not break your udu. You just rinse your hands afterwards for added purity. And Allah knows best. Right. As I said, if the issue bothers you, we'll have a look at it. You understand? And we'll have a look at the statements of the ulama. You understand? Not somebody like me, today's child. You understand? But the classical ulama throughout the history of Islam. We see what's truth and what is not truth. You understand? So if you want, no problem. I've got nothing to hide, I've got nothing to fear. When the truth comes, falsehood runs away. It is in the nature of falsehood to run away. Truth got nothing to fear. You understand? So you can bring whatever you want to bring to class. It says the opposite of what I say. Like maybe you read Mufti Taki with Mahani's book. It says you must make taklid, you must make taklid of one mother and all of that. I got no problem. Bring it to class. Bring to class the views of whoever you want to, the books of whoever you want to, and we'll have a look at the opposite, what is found in the classical books. Remember in the Quran, Allah says, Atu burhanakum in kuntum sadiqeen. Bring your proof if that which you say is true. There's one thing you need to understand here. The ulama of the world agree that it is safest to be a member of one of the former died. And it is safest to stick to one of the former died. After having said it is safest, is the opposite haram. You can't produce a ruling such as haram without evidence from Quran and Hadith. The only thing you can say is, it is less safe. That's all you can say. So this is safest, and the other one is, Less safe. But you cannot produce a, a statement that is haram and halal unless there's evidence in Quran and Hadith. And Allah knows best. Right. But we'll discuss that further on. Right. <coughs> Next issue, the non-nullifiers. Things that don't break the wudu. So number one, when you bleed. It doesn't matter how much you bleed in the shafi understanding of things. Bleeding does not break the wudu. <coughs> I remind you that when blood exits the body, then it's considered a najasa. So if there's blood on the body, then you are physically impure while the blood is on the body. But it doesn't break the wudu. So if the blood is washed away, and then you would be clean again. And Allah knows best. Also, the eating of meat, cooked or uncooked, does not break the wudu. Why am I going out of my way to mention these things? Number one, bleeding according to the Hanafi mother breaks the wudu. Number two, according to the Hanbali school of law, and most people in Hijaz, Makkah, Medina, those regions, 
They believe to eat camel meat, breaks the hudu. Also, there was a period in Islam where eating of cooked meat broke the hudu as well. Both of these laws were abrogated, were rescinded, were cancelled. And so the majority of Muslims believe that eating of any meat does not break the hudu. And Allah knows best. But there are still some Muslims that practice on some of it. Such as the eating of camel meat breaks the wudu, and the eating of cooked meat breaks the wudu. But the bulk of Muslims do not act on that particular view. Also, loud laughter in salah does not break the wudu. It does break the salah, yes. But it does not break the wudu. In the Hanafi Madhab, it breaks your wudu also. <laughs> if you did it while in salah, if you did it while in salah, then your wudu would have been broken according to the Hanafi Madhab. Not according to the Shafi understanding. Not according to the Shafi understanding. Vomiting also does not break your wudu according to the Shafi understanding. According to Hamad Hanafis, if you vomit a mouthful, then your wudu breaks. Shafi's vomiting does not break the wudu. Is it Halloween in South Africa now? I know in America it is. Yesterday. Yeah, yeah it's utter nonsense. The following also does not break your wudu. Doubt after conviction of purity. What does this mean? I know for a fact I took wudu. But I doubt as to one of the five breakers of wudu, did it happen to me, yes or no? So in Islam, doubt in the presence of conviction is not worth anything. So I'm convinced I took wudu. So if I'm convinced I took wudu, then what condition am I in? I'm in ritual purity, isn't it? Then I doubt whether I pooped, whether I broke wind. Is my wudu broken? No. My wudu is still valid. Is everybody with me? The best thing for you to do actually at that moment in time is to definitively break your wudu and then take a new wudu. But if you want to, you can still act upon that particular wudu. Now there's a hadith regarding this that the Muslims use as evidence and the hadith is sometimes misunderstood which is why I want to explain it to you. A sahabi came to the Prophet and said, I feel things in my stomach while I'm in salah. Is my wudu broken? So the Prophet told him, you must continue making salah until you experience and sense a rihan, a smell, a sawtan, or a sound. A smell or a sound. Some Muslims must understand what this hadith means. They say it means that if you poop in such a way that there's no smell and no sound, then you're still in a state of wudu. That is not what the Prophet ﷺ intended. He intended the following. It is not a poop unless one of the definitive indicators of poop is there. So two of the definitive indicators of poop is number one, the smell. Poop is poop, my bro. 
The smell. Number two is the is the sound. But there's a greater indicator of a poop than the, than the two of them, which is what? The feeling is it goes out. Can I make a mistake? What the feeling? What the smell? Maybe it's not me, maybe it's the guy next to me. <coughs> the same thing with the poop. With the sound. Isn't it? It could be the guy next to me. But when I feel it, can it be the guy next to me? Obviously it can't be the guy next to me. I feel it going out. So it must be me. So though the prophet doesn't mention number three, you understand it must include number three. And maybe the reason he's not mentioning number three is because it's the obvious. Is everybody with me? So we mustn't come up with our own magical understandings of hadith also. You know in the same? As a poop and sewer way, as a guanya sound, guanya reke, right me up does this no. No. The Prophet of Islam is saying that if there's one of the definitive signs, then the wudu is broken. If there's not a definitive sign, then you are in doubt. But you have conviction of purity. So act upon your conviction. Do not act on the doubt. And Allah knows best. This here is a standard law in Islam. Standard law. We use it everywhere. You married a woman. The reason you married her is you believed her to be chaste. Now somebody's starting a rumor about her. A bad rumor. That she's not chaste. Should I allow the rumor to get to me? There's no evidence. You understand? While I married her on the conviction that she's chaste. Should I let this doubt now do stuff to me? Or should I just cast it aside? And the answer is, cast it aside. Doubt in the presence of conviction is nothing. So cast it aside. And Allah knows best. <coughs> right. Are there any questions before we continue? On the issue of the Isiyad and Taqlid, this is one interesting question I want to ask. Shafis, when they go for Hajj, for Tawaf, which madhab do they follow? Huh? Fokuma is the problem the Tawaf business. Huh? So if I'm making tawaf, the possibility that I'm going to touch a woman and going to break my udu is big. Then if my udu is broken in tawaf, how easy is it to take another udu? Extremely difficult, isn't it? So what are all the hajj agents telling the hujaj? And what do they teach in all the hajj classes with regards to tawaf? They teach you what? They teach you follow the Hanafi madhab. So what can I make my light open changing there? I'm just giving you one example. You understand? Is any one of you using fertilizer in your garden? Eh? Pyramus. Okay. What do you think is used to grow your carrots 
and your cabbages and all of this. Peramus, what is it? It is bought and bought. The farmer did he purchase it? Hey? Chances are he did. What is a cabbage farmer doing with a lot of horses? Cabbages and horses don't go together. There's no logical connection between cabbages and horses. They probably bought it, isn't it? In the Shafi Mother, you cannot buy anything that is impure. So it's haram. So your vorel is automatically haram. So whose school of law are they acting on? And I can continue like that. There are many acts that currently you are doing. You don't realize you're following another madhab. You understand? In fact, the average person on the ground doesn't know what a madhab is. That's why the official view of the leading scholars of the Shafi madhab is al-awamula madhab alahum. The common man does not follow a madhab. He's not able to. He doesn't know the difference between this and that. Like for example, one week in Sherwood Park, I was teaching a lesson. And a man told me, As waarwat molena se, Thais hier waarheid, Thais hier saaf hier view. Ek had het net gestaan gelees in a boek, en wat ek het bereis. So I asked him, what's the book's name? So he said, Baesti Zever. So I just smiled. Baesti Zever is written by Mona Ashraf Ali Atanawi. It is a Hanafi book on Fiqh. He just told me, as waar wat molena se, Tijdens die Shafi review, het het gestaan gelees in Beesti Zever. Want Beesti Zever is a Hanafi boek on Fiqh. So you see, this is what is commonly happening. In the house of the layman, you will find, not just books on the Shafi madam, and the Hanafi madam, you will find books of the Shia. Not just books of the Shia, books of people that you think are Muslim and aren't even Muslim, like the Baha'iyah, etc., etc. And at the end of the day, frequently the belief system and the practice system of the average Muslim is a conglomerate of everything that they've ever read in their entire life. Which is one of the reasons why I'm teaching this class. Because I want you to get more authentic religion. You understand? And you can stop me at any given moment in time and ask me, what is the evidence for that? In fact, in most instances you don't need to. Because I've attempted in my notes to make it so that whatever statement I give you, I give you the hadith that goes with it. Or I give you the ayah that goes with it. So only on the odd chance and I didn't mention it. You understand that it's going to come up and Allah knows best. But uh, anyway, that's that. Types of Najasat. What's it? Break? Okay, right. Let's break for five minutes and
Can you start in about 30 seconds? Shukran. When they speak of ritual impurities, the idea was they are not clean enough to perform certain rituals. Those rituals are the following three rituals. In the case of wudu, salah. So I will not be allowed to perform salah unless I'm in a state of wudu. Also tawaf. Tawaf is circling the Kaaba, which happens during the rituals of Hajj or Umrah. So I'm not allowed to circle the Kaaba in a special way that is known as tawaf without being in a state of wudu. Also, in the Shafi understanding, I'm not allowed to touch the Quran. The physical copy of the Quran, I'm not allowed to touch the Quran when I'm not in a state of wudu. And Allah knows best. So that's easy to understand, no difficulties inshallah. Are there any questions that might come to mind? No questions, right. Yeah, I made a mistake somehow, yeah. How oh, is it? The types of najasat. Najasa is a physical impurity. So there are three types of physical impurities. There's severe, there's moderate, and there's light. You don't need to know the Arabic terms. Severe is called Mughallazah. Mughallazah. Moderate is called Mutawasitah. And light is called Mukhaffafah. Mukhaffafah. You don't need to know the Arabic terms. So there's a severe physical impurity. In English, you'd probably call it something like highly toxic. You understand? But amongst Muslims, we just call it a severe Physical impurity. Then we have a moderate one. It is in between severe and mild, moderate. And then we have a very light najasa. A very light najasa. So the pig and the dog are regarded as severe impurities. Yeah, I remind you that you are only affected by the impurity of a pig and a dog when there is wet contact. If there is dry contact, then there is no transferal of impurity. 
So if a dog puts his nose against you, since the nose is always wet, you understand, then there's transferal. Likewise, when it licks you, then there's transferal. Or perhaps your jacket is wet due to rain, and then you touch a dog that's dry, then there's transferal. But if a dog just rubs its body against you, its dry body, and your clothing is dry as well, and you look down and you see some hair, then technically with the exception of the hair, there's no transfer of impurities. All you need to do is to shake the hair off, and then technically you will be considered clean. Is everybody with me? Right. The reasons for why Islam considers the pig and the dog as severe impurities is debatable. Some scientists have discovered a particular virus and bacteria in the pig and uh, you've watched certain video clips of that before Shamless played it. There are certain sicknesses related to dogs as well where dogs are the carriers between the sickness and humans. You understand? So it passes from dogs unto humans uh, certain uh, sicknesses. Allah knows best. All we know is that Islam considers them to be impure and Islam considers them to be severe impurities. And Allah knows best. So wet contact with dogs or swine passes the impurity and then the impurity cannot be washed away except if you wash the affected area seven times. And one of the times must include soil. So in one of the seven washes, you must add sand and wash with sand. Now back in the day, people might not have known why. In today's time, we know why. Why does Omo clean your clothes better than just normal water? It's an abrasive, yes. You understand? It's an unnaturally created abrasive for the purposes of washing. But back in the day, there was a natural abrasive that many people used, and that is sand. In fact, painters in today's time, if they can't find their thinners and their stuff, you understand, then sometimes they use sand to aid them in removing excess paint and the like. So it's an abrasive. You understand? So it actually washes away impurities even better than if you just used water on its own. Allah knows best. So there must be seven complete washings. And one of the washings must invo involve the usage of Sand with water onto the area. So moist sand. And Allah knows best. So that is a severe impurity. A pig and a dog. Yes. Cats are considered 100% pure. The only time you have a problem with a cat is after it just ate a mouse. Then you have to make sure that there is no blood on the area that it makes contact with you. If it is left for a while, the cat will clean itself. You understand? So that's not an issue. According to Islamic law, a cat is considered 100% pure. And if you study a cat, you'll see it cleaning itself the whole day. All day. Here is that it cannot reach with its tongue. It moistens the paw and then it cleans it. And then it comes and cleans it again. You understand? A cat is actually busy with whistle the entire day. 
But technically, the cat is the boss. That's the point, you understand? But honestly, with a dog, and this is one of the reasons why humans like dogs, is that a dog is an outright slave. He submits to you. You the boss. You understand? And that's why many people like dogs. In the way Allah knows best. But with a cat, it's not like that. Cat is the boss. Right. I, Najasa, a physical impurity that is considered light, is the urine of a baby boy that has not started to consume normal foodstuffs. That is only consuming human milk, breast milk. It is considered light. And it's for this reason that when you clean it, it uh, if a baby boy urinates in a particular area, then according to Islamic law, if it does sprinkle the area and drench it with water, then that is sufficient to actually clean it. It doesn't refer to the urine of a baby girl, which is considered more potent than that of a boy. Right? There's no sexism in the masala, in the issue. The issue just has to do with reality. Of the two, the female is the more potent one. The female is the life-bearing one. With life-bearing liquids such as hide and all of the, uh, and the like. Those life-bearing liquids are very potent. You understand? When hide leaves the body, it's a super najasa, isn't it? For very good reasons. While it was in the body, it was a super nutrient for a baby. You understand? So Allah knows best. So there's nothing to do with sexism or anything like that. It just has to do with the fact that, according to Islamic law, the one is considered weaker than the other. And that has to do with potency. That has to do with potency. And Allah knows best. So, besides these two, extreme and light, every other Nazis is considered moderate. So the, the filth of a dog and a pig, extreme. If affected, must be washed seven times once with soil. The urine of a baby boy that is merely breastfeeding, not eating normal food yet, is considered light. You only need to soak the affected area. Wash it seven times once with soil. Only soak. You don't need to even squeeze it out. You understand? So technically you're flooding the area with water and then when there's a certain amount of water then it's as if the nudges don't exist. It is reduced uh, in potency to such an uh, amount that in the eyes of Sharia, in Islamic law, it doesn't exist. And in the middle is normal najasa. So what do you do with normal najasa? You must remove the physical body of normal najasa. One of the best methods to remove the physical body of normal najasa is to have water flow over it. And after that, if there's no taste of the najasa, no smell of the najasa, no color of the najasa, then it is 100% clean. However, what if taste persists? I wash the physical body of the najasa away, but somehow taste is still there of the najasa. Now, you would know the taste is still there, I don't know. But somehow you know. You understand? Somehow you did something and you tasted it. 
It's still there. You understand? So, according to Islamic law, if taste still persists, then it means the physical object is still there. You can't see it, but it's still there. If taste is there, it's still there. Right. If only color is there, or smell is there, it's overlooked in Islamic law. Because color and smell is a thing that can persist. To give an example, in today's time we use throw away diapers, isn't it? As lekker for us, mashallah. When I started, I got six children of my own. When I started with my first child, they didn't invent the throw away diapers yet. So it was the diapers that you must unhitterik it, then there is gewasset. And unfortunately, babies are very creative when it comes to number two. They throw out all colors. Yellow, red, green, blue. And they come on a diaper was so much as they will. They can jig so much as they will. You don't get a hundred percent white one afterwards. Any of those in my age category or older would know the truth of it. You understand? It will be white, but it's only one percent white visi. But in Islamic law, that would still be considered clean. That's a persistent color. You understand that somehow I'm not able to remove. So it would still be considered clean. Though the color persists. And sometimes you clean, you clean, you clean, you clean. There's no taste. There's no color. But somehow there's still some smell in the air. In today's time you'll use something powerful to take the smell away. You understand? Jai's flute may be of it today. Right? But previous to our times now, rural settings and the like, Islamic law would consider the affected area to be clean, though the smell still persists. Because maskin is not in the air. I see me up your object. It's like when somebody goes to the toilet and they do number two and they flush. Technically the number two is gone, isn't it? But is it still in the air in the toilet? Eh? It's still in the air. That's why they invented air fresheners and all of those things. If there's something I really hate, it's a weak air freshener. <laughs> you get nice air fresheners. If you spray, then the smell is gone. But you get an air freshener that actually mixes with the smell and produces a weird third smell. There's neither number two alone, no air freshener alone, but a conglomerate of the two. It really sickens me. So please don't buy cheap air freshener. <laughs> buy a good one, Canela. Yeah, buy a good one. Then, I don't smoke. I've never smoked my entire life. If there's one place where I appreciate a smoker, it's in the toilet. Because there's something in matches that actually overpowers the smell of number two. I learned it a while back. Which is why sometimes when I travel, I travel with a box of matches. If I go to a toilet, public toilet, or the like, when I enter, I strike a match and I throw it in a bowl, then I wait a bit. Say. And then I enter. Just the smell of that, that sulfur smell of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a match, it actually takes the smell away. Try it one day. So instead of buying cheap air fresheners, leave a box of matches. <laughs> anyway, so let's try it again. 
we have very severe najasa. The dog and the pig. So yeah, you must wash it away seven times, seven washings, once with soil. Very light. That is the urine of a baby boy that is breastfeeding. Has not consumed any other food. Yeah, you just need to sprinkle water and soak the area. Then we have in between any and every other nudges. <coughs> so it is normally cleansed by washing away the area. If it takes away all three of the qualities, taste, color, and smell, 100% good job. If, however, taste persists, then the nudges is still there. You're going to have to wash again. If, however, just one of them remains, color or smell, not taste. If taste alone exists, the nudges is still there. Right? But if it is just color or just smell, <coughs> then we will say the nudges is gone. If, however, it is taste, no, sorry, I already mentioned taste. If it is, however, color and smell, then the nudges is still there. You need to wash it a little bit more. Is everybody with me? Right. So once again, normal najasa. We wash it away. If all three qualities go, alhamdulillah, it's clean. If just taste remains, problem, must wash again. If it is just color, it's clean. If it is just smell, it is clean. If it is color and smell, not clean. Must wash it away. Is everybody with me? Right. One washing is sufficient. When I say one washing, I mean continuing to throw water. Right? While the water that falls away is still different in color, smell, and taste, it means the object isn't clean yet. But there comes a point where the water that goes away, I can see there's no color in it, there's no taste etc. Assumption now from what I'm able to see, then it will mean that the area normally is clean. If the area is considered clean, the water that flows away is also considered clean. Is everybody with me? Right. Now I just want to do something for you. You're a Muslim, right? You've learned how to clean Najasa. Isn't it? Right. How do you wash your clothing? Is there any najasa on it? Eh? Eh? No, before you put it in the washing machine. Right. So let's say you have a clothing that has najasa on it. As a twin tap, no? Let's try twin tap. So I'm throwing it in the water in the twin tap. But it's a clothing item that has najasa on it. What does it do to the water? Makes the water nudges now, isn't it? So all that water is nudges. What happens to all the other clothes? Also nudges. Now vasus it must no liquor, right? Then we drain the water away. But the clothes that remain is all nudges, isn't it? Then I put it in the dryer and we take all the water away. The spinner, I mean. But it's all nudges, isn't it? And then I hang it up. Did that solve my problem? Eh? 
Eh? Okay. So, you must have in your toilet one container for used clothing. No Najasa on. One container for used clothing with this perhaps Najasa on. Or you must teach yourself and your children Najasa consciousness. So if, for example, on his underwear there's some Najasa, before he throws it into the used clothing, he must put it under the tap and wash the Najasa away. Even if it's wet, then he throws it in the used clothing. But he first removed the Najasa. Now when it goes to the two and top, it's not a problem. But if it goes to the two and top just like that, that's a problem. It's everybody with me. So you must either teach yourself, your husband, your wife, your children, how Najasa works. You understand? And if there's any Najasa on the clothing, they must clean it beforehand, before it goes to the torn tap. Or you must have two containers. One that is used but technically clean. Automatic means clean, as in Najasa open. But it's worn. And then some clothing there is Najasa on. Then with the Najasa clothing, you use a different process to clean it. Prior to putting it into the wash tub. You understand? Maybe putting it under a tap, letting water run through it, squeezing it a few times, rubbing it, checking if you can see any Najasa on it, something like that. And Allah knows? Best. Right. Are there any questions? That's it for two and tap. What does he do when, when I have the other one? Huh? Top load there. Solve time problem? I'm asking. What I'm going to do for you this week is, I want you to go home and research the stop loader idea. Solve the top loader, it won't have a problem. It is constantly water with that loop. Over the water and amount work on 180 liters. Solve the issue. I want you to give it some thought. Come back to me next week. Alright, next issue. You might not know it, but Najasa is everywhere. Sometimes you're eating it. I like to buy chicken tikka by that Pakistani there in the corner. <laughs> but if you watch closely, he's using a paintbrush. And then he... Right. If you look at his paintbrush, you will see sometimes written on the silver part, Pure bristle. If you turn it around, in Afrikaans it's written, Echte fark haar. The best hair for a paint brush is the hair of a pig. They sometimes use horse hair, you understand, but most commonly they use pig hair, if it's not artificial. You understand? If it's artificial, it's a plastic. The chicken got it melt. You understand? So they don't use that one. You get a professional plastic rubber one that's heat resistant. In Pakistan, you can even I can find pure bristle.
You understand? I buy Pakistan chicken, chicken tikka regularly. But I come and inspect your pain brush. You understand? So, I'm just explaining to you that they don't. As next farkan may leave any, as next wanton may leave any. It's everywhere, my friend. It's everywhere. You need to be careful. So a Muslim is very conscientious. Doesn't just eat anywhere. Doesn't just buy anything. You understand? You went and bought that nice leather jacket. That nice soft shoe. Because your, your, your souls are very sensitive. Like a green cross. To draadze het lekker vir sis maanden. To een dag, to die net vader sal haar klaar gemaakt het, to hou die sloppie dop. To sien nie op die label as sy skryf, genuine pig leather. The softer the leather, the greater chances is made from pig leather. So you can't just go and buy leather jackets also. You understand? You need to read what is written on the label. You need to ask, but the animal. You understand? Am I dealing with? Tanning purifies. But it doesn't purify pig skin. It doesn't purify dog skin. We're not used to dog skin here, the side of the world. In China, they eat dogs. And China is for real old dog. <laughs> you understand? Here it's figurative. Over there it's literal. Old dog. <laughs> right I won't be taking too much of your time so. <coughs> Najasat can also be divided into Ainiya with discernible characteristics and Hukmiya without discernible characteristics what do I mean by this statement with discernible characteristics meaning I can see its color I can smell it and I can taste it. So I can taste the nudges. I can see the nudges. I can smell the nudges. So some of the characteristics, the quality of the nudges, I'm able to perceive it. But sometimes the nudges is not on that level. I'm not able to perceive it. You understand? Like let's say for example, it's a sunny day. I'm peeing against the wall. I'm standing and peeing against the wall. I shouldn't be as a Muslim. But anyway, I'm doing it. As I'm peeing, I'm deciding to watch the pee, which I also shouldn't do, but I'm watching the pee. Then I'm noticing that there's pee shooting towards my clothing. I can see drops of urine shooting towards my clothing. So I get a shock and I realize, oh, this is wrong what I'm doing. So I move away. Afterwards, I look at my clothing, but I don't see any wet spots. Is the nudges, isn't the nudges? Is the nudges, isn't the nudges? I saw the urines going towards the clothing. You understand? And in my mind, I know for a fact, it touched my clothing. Is the nudges, isn't the nudges? Now when I'm looking, I don't see color changes. I wouldn't be able to pick up a smell change. because a small drops of urine. And if I were to decide to taste it, I probably wouldn't taste it also. And Allah knows best. Is everybody with me? But technically, is there an ajasa there? So that means it falls under the second category, isn't it? Right. In that particular case, it's overlooked. Islamic law overlooks it. 
And Azasa is considered so small in amount that it can be overlooked in that particular case. Is everybody with me? But the reason I'm explaining it to you is to explain to you that there's a case where it's discernible, I'm able to pick up, and there's a case where I'm not able to pick up, but I know you're there. Is everybody with me? Right? So, so let's have a look at some more examples. Discernible impurities. Okay, I've mentioned this before. It is necessary to remove all taste even when difficult. I've explained this. When taste is there, then the object is, is, is must be there. Right? It is necessary to remove both color and smell if not difficult. Right? If both color and smell is there, the Nazis is still there. If odor alone or color alone, so there's only one of them, is difficult to remove, then the one may remain. Meaning, if there's a stubborn stain, after continued washing, the stain remains, you will then consider the area clean. If there's just a stain, but no odor. If there's just odor, but no stain, same thing. It will be considered clean. Right. But if both remain, there's odor and color, then the allocation will be considered impure. And you need to continue washing until at least only one remains. Indiscernible impurities. To remove an indiscernible impurity, such as a drop of dried urine. So urine splashed onto an object. While it was wet, I saw the wet spot. Then for some reason or other, I left it. Now it is time for me to clean it. I know the location of the spot. I look at the spot, no color, no smell, probably no taste. But when it was wet, I saw the spot. Is that area filthy, yes or no? Answer is yes, it is filthy. So I must wash it. Is everybody with me? So it falls in the category of indiscernible impurities. But I know you're there. Because when it was wet, I saw you. So I know you're there. So you dried up, you dried your in now, and now I can't pick you up anymore, but I know you're there. So that area must still be washed. As for the splashing that we spoke about over there, it was small, minuscule droplets. Only due to, due to good sunlight was I able to see it going in that direction. You understand? And when I looked, even while it was still in its wet condition, I wasn't able to pick up spots. Here it was large enough in amount that when it wet my clothing, I could see the wet version of it. Now that it is dried, I can't see it anymore, but I know it's there. Is everybody with me? Right. <coughs> right. So basically that is what we have come to teach today. The one thing I, I, I would have to say is that in Islam, they don't mess around with impurities. They teach you impurities in great detail. In fact, next week when we're going to be doing ghusl, one of the things that breaks your ghusl, if there's emission of sexual fluids, in Islam there's no modesty when it comes to learning. So there'll actually be a description of what is the sexual fluids of a male, what is the sexual fluids of a woman, etc., etc. Because you need to know. You need to know, is this what is affecting my clothing, yes or no? 
Do I need to wash it away? Yes or no? So according to the law of Islam, great effort is taken to be clean. We are not so excessive that we place such difficult laws upon you that it breaks your back. There are certain amounts of impurity that is overlooked. In fact, in your notes, in your notes I've given you an entire list. I'm not going to go through it. I want you to go through it on your own. It's on page 8. Overlooked impurities. And it goes right down to page 9. Read up on it on your own. If you have any questions, you bring it back to class next week. Inshallah. Do you have any questions now, perhaps? Any questions? Yes? We just answered it. We said impurities are discernible and indiscernible. So I know you're there. <laughs> so that's it. If I take dog poo and I cut a piece of dog poo off, let's say the size of my finger, and I throw it into the clothing, you understand? Uh, a twin tub is actually a more powerful washer than the other brother. It washes cleaner than the other brother, to be honest with you. <coughs> you understand? But this is the one weakness in the twin tub system. If I throw it in there, after I've picked up all my washing, will the dog poo still, still be there? Will I be able to see it with my eye? Probably not. After all that vigorous washing, and it won't be discernible. But to the eye, my clothing will look clean, isn't it? But you know, it's been dog pooed. So it's an indiscernible impurity. I want you to give some thought to the other washing method. You understand? Then also I gave you a solution. Use clothing Clothing that somehow is najasa on. For whatever reason. We are human beings. Mistakes happen. Like it's my height, it's my menses. I did put a pad there, but I made a bit of a mistake. So some bleeding came on the underwear. So what do you do next? Do you just throw it in the twin tub? Or you wash it separately? So many women wash it separately and dry it separately. So there's a reason why you're doing all of that. You understand? Because you know it's najasa. So does it only apply to high blood? Doesn't it apply to other things? Once in a while, a maki buta must take that on the toilet. As most kabiyos, as most means. Isn't it? So occasionally mistakes will be made. So when the mistake is made, how do you clean it? How do you clean it? That's the issue. You just throw it in a wash. You can't just throw it in a wash if you're Muslim. You understand? There must be a different method. So I want you to give it some thought. What other methods are there? What method would you suggest? You understand? It can be used to ensure that my clothing is clean. And Allah knows best. We stop there. We continue next week, inshallah.